This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author Rachel Botsman. She joined me in the studio to talk about her new book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Could Drive Us Apart. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins. And I promised, and I have now delivered, uh, that we've got Rachel Botsman, wonderful uh, author and thinker and researcher. And she joins me in the studio to talk about her new book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Could Drive Us Apart. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us today. Good morning. Who can you trust? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> Big question Big mark. Question mark. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a huge problem isn't it? Mm. This question of trust. And I liked uh, in your book that you're really um, trying to define trust, Mm. first of all, because that's a really difficult thing. And when you ask the question, what does trust mean to you? You do get a whole range of responses. So perhaps we could start there so that we can then utilize that definition that we get to in all of the examples and the way that it's changed. Yeah, I find trust so interesting because it's it's one of those words we use a lot. I don't trust this person. I trust this person. And then when you ask people, well, what does it really mean? Um, it's very hard to define. And so that's one of the things. And, and I think the, the most helpful thing is, is that trust isn't, it's not a communication thing. It's not an attribute. It's actually a process that people go through. And whenever you're asking someone to trust, um, they're in a, a known state, if you like, and you're asking them to place their faith in something unknown. So um, first time you get in a self-driving car, um, placing your money in a bank account, faith in a total stranger. And so what trust is, the way I define it, is a confident relationship to the unknown. Um, it's not actually knowing the outcome of things. And so it's it's wonderful alchemy of, of vulnerability and expectations. And, and it's so important to society because it's what enables us to place our faith in, in institutions and systems. But it's also what enables us to take risks and to move forward. So when trust starts to wobble, um, whether it be in a company or in the nature of individual and society, it's, it's fascinating, but but worrying. Yes. And as you say, uh, and you have said uh, verbally, uh, that trust is an elusive concept, but yet we depend on it for our lives to function. So mm. trust is really essential to our economic lives, but also our, as you have suggested, our relationships mm. with other human beings, romantic relationships, regular family-based relationships. So in terms of um, this really invisible but highly important uh, concept of trust, and, and there you're talking about um, this confidence mm. in the unknown. I mean, it's one of the other uh, definitions that you've quoted, which I also thought was useful, was um, from Nicholas Luhmann, who wrote, trust is confidence in one's expectations. Mm. Um, and that, to me kind of has summed up my feelings sometimes when I feel like I am very trusting. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm just kind of feeling really comfortable with what I expect out of this. Mm, mm, no, it's absolutely. I mean, you talk about sort of um, the role of trust and I think it's really helpful to think of it like a social glue that really ties people together. And um, you look at the history of trust, it, it's very innate, innate, innate to human beings because you know, it was what enabled us to cooperate and to collaborate and have those social connections. But it is true. I think, you know, you think it's, the one thing to remember is trust is really contextual. So what you're talking about is sometimes you're in situations where you understand why people trust you. And, you know, and there's other times where you feel a bit wobbly and, and you lack confidence around something. And it's like, you know, I can... 
hopefully I'm trustworthy to write a book or an article, but not a great driver. Um, so I, I think this is really important that we tend to talk about trust very generally. And, and this is very dangerous in terms of conversation that's happening around. I don't trust the media. I don't trust government to do what? You know, there's certain things that we do trust them to do. And there are certain people. And so one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that I feel like this narrative that we have where trust is in crisis and we don't trust anyone. What that actually does is it creates a very dangerous vacuum for conspiracy theories and for different voices and for people who understand how to speak to feelings over facts and so even amplifying the anger around distrust I don't think is a healthy thing that is going on at the moment. Mm. And one of the um, conceptual graphics in your book which is really useful um, and which I guess is critical to this uh, the description of how trust works is that you start with something that's known, that's where you're coming from, and there's an unknown at mm. the end. And as you've said, um, there's a leap, a trust mm. leap, and within that leap there's often inherently risk. There's very few times where there isn't a risk involved. Um, in most things there'll be some level of risk. So with when we're making trust leaps, and one of those is, as you say, going into a um, – a driverless car and, you know, hoping that it all goes well and it doesn't crash. Um, what are some of the other trust leaps that we're making that we may not even realise that we're, we're taking at the moment? Yeah. I mean, just on the driverless car, I think it's funny. People say, oh, people won't trust driverless cars. People won't trust humans. Yeah, exactly. You know, like this is, and once a leap has happened, it, it happens remarkably fast. That's what's interesting. So you're right. So, um, the line between sort of the known and the unknown is risk. Um, it's the management of uncertainty. And in all every day we take about we take risks and we shouldn't think about them too much because we actually wouldn't get anything done. But the level of risk is different for for different people, for different age groups, for different backgrounds. And some trust leaps are pretty minor. You wouldn't even think about them. So, you know, if you give up paper billing and you switched online, that's a trust leap. Um, some are pretty significant. So first time you use your credit card details on a website uh, using eBay and ATM. All these things, first time you get on a plane, these are trust leaps. Um, and sometimes products or services fail because society isn't ready to take that leap. Um, so elevators are really interesting lifts um, that when they were first introduced, people didn't like the idea of a driverless elevator. So they put human beings in there. Yeah. All right. Is, that's why they're there. That's why they were there. <laughs> and then they removed them again. Yeah. Um, but so I think it's really interesting how technology and the designers actually build these things to enable our trust. Um, and I think what's happening today is the reason why we feel so much change. We feel like we're moving at this frightening speed is that technology is enabling but it's also asking us to leap mm. faster and higher than ever before so it's not that a trust leap is a new thing so um, when we switch from bartering to money that was a huge trust leap it's just the pace of these leaps and and how fast they're happening is is it's, it's quite frightening in many ways. Yeah, and a really good example that you highlight is the sharing economy because mm. that is a huge leap. You know, for me, that was a very big leap. The first time I used Airbnb was like, oh, my gosh, I'm – even though I, I rented out the house, I wasn't renting a room in someone's house, mm. it was still really scary that, well, I mean, it's their house and they have the keys and, you know, how trusting am I given they're a complete stranger? Did it work out? Uh, it did. There's only one time where it would kind of didn't, but yeah. that, that was more about 
do we trust each other? It wasn't necessarily like, yeah, it was more, um, expectations. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and, I mean, and also they were Scottish, so I think there was a barrier, a cultural barrier at the beginning because they were very, um, there was a like heavy accent and, you know, mm. and they were speaking more Scottish than English. <laughs> so that was probably more of the problem, but I actually love Scotland. It's my, one of my favorite countries. So then I did get over that and I did yeah. leap and it was great in the end. But yeah, it, that was, I felt like a very personal mm. challenge almost of getting past the real uncomfort, discomfort that I had around being in someone else's else's place but then you think about it and you're in a hotel well I mean how different is it it is different. I mean, it's it's more than two million people um, use Airbnb every night, which is astonishing. And um, you know, I, the, my first book was on the sharing economy, and I remember saying to my editor, "I'm going to open this story about this company called Airbnb." He was like, "Don't do that. It will be it will be shut down before the <laughs> book is out." Um, but you know, the interesting thing is, I use Airbnb a lot, and for me, initially, it was about trust. Um, but I'm always amazed at how much I feel like I know about the person before they come into my home. And I think I've got a lot smarter and wiser about the questions that I ask. But when it falls down, particularly when I'm a guest, it's actually misalignment of expectations. Mm. And so I find it really fascinating now that Emmy and me are trying to encourage hosts to say, here's the two things that are fantastic about my place. But here's the one thing that you may not like. You know, it's a busy road. I say there's a possum in our back garden. Um, and that's, that's actually a good thing because you're yeah. aligning expectations. And, and that's um, trust. There's a, this amazing quote, this guy called Diego Gambetta. He says, trust has two enemies, not one, bad character and poor information. And technology can do a lot to address that second thing. It actually can mm. do amazing things around bad character. But, um, yeah, this is what I find interesting is how the places and the people can feel familiar through the technology. Yeah. And it's also that rating system which gives people a lot more security around character. Mm. And if you're almost trusting other people to rate these people honestly and evaluate them for you so that you can then trust them, put your trust in them by choosing them and their house. Their house. Yeah, it's kind of, and this is this notion that I talk about in the book of d- distributed trust, that um, it's really about the wisdom of friends and friends, so to speak. But um, And I'm the first one to say that the reigning systems were very clunky to begin with, and they've still got a long way to go. You know, mm-hmm. I give you five, you give me five. Yeah. Um, but Airbnb's made progress in that they're blind, you know, so you don't see until they've posted theirs. And they're starting to get more contextual. So, um, you know, you don't just write a five, you write about cleanliness and communication and accuracy and um, value for money. And, and so they're becoming more useful. So... I think we'll look back at these, you know, starred systems that we started with and think, how on earth did we rely on them? Yeah. Like, you know, you think about getting on a car. I was thinking about last night, I got on the yeah. car like midnight with an Uber driver and all I had was a little picture and his star rating. So, yeah, and as the book isn't it, it's not all positive it does point no. out many of the flaws of this new world as well exactly yeah I do have those moments as where I'm going well someone's just you know in their car picking me up from my place so mm. yeah and I don't know who they are some of them are really lovely yeah <laughs> some you're like oh I'm not quite sure it's you know and I think this was the thing that I realized is that um there's plenty of trust out there. Yeah. In fact, we give our trust away very, very easily. And, you know, when I was in Abu Dhabi and I got in a car with a guy named Prince at 2am, you know, like, and I thought of telling my mum this and she'd yeah. be like, what are you doing? 
<laughs> exactly. And and you mentioned their distributed trust. Yeah. Let's go through the evolution of trust because you talk about local trust, institutional trust, and now distributed trust. Can we go through that historical evolution of trust and how that has changed? Yeah, I promise you it's actually interesting, the history of trust. But um, so the the way I think of trust is it's like energy. So it, it doesn't it doesn't disappear or get destroyed. It changes form. And so for a long time in, in society, we had local trust. And it's just think of us living in villages and communities where we kind of knew everyone else. Um, and if you did something bad, you get a bad reputation. And trust was very personal. It was very face-to-face. Now, when we wanted to move, when we moved to cities and larger towns and where we wanted to internationally trade, for good reason, we invented institutional trust. Um, we invented corporate brands. We invented intermediaries like real estate agents. Um, we invented things like insurance. And this was an amazing thing in terms of progress in the Industrial Revolution. Now, what's happening is that it's not those two things are going away. It's that there is a third form rising up that I call distributed trust. So that this trust that used to flow largely upwards, so to a CEO, to an expert, to a regulator, to a leader, is now flowing sideways um, to colleagues, peers, neighbours, friends. And a lot of people, the way they get their heads around this is, is you say, well, think about the last holiday you book or the last bo- book that you bought online or an item of clothing and, and what influenced that decision. And they'll probably say it was some review or some rating system. That's distributed mm-hmm. trust. But it has much deeper roots than this because, um, for example, Brexit, when they looked at Ipsos did a big study on what influenced people's vote, people were saying like their friends or a stranger on the bus have more influence over an economist. And so that's why the consequences of this, they're not all good because, you know, you do want to go to the doctor sometimes, not listen to mum's net. Um, there is, it's very hard to sort out misinformation and the truth, um, facts and fiction online. And, and so while it democratizes voices, it can also put power into the hands of you know, the wrong people in the wrong places. Exactly. And you do, just as you referenced there, Brexit, um, you mentioned in the book about this discussion um, that, you know, some really prominent politicians said, I'm a bit sick of experts yeah. in this debate and facts. You know? yeah. And there were a lot of contested facts around how much, um, you know, the healthcare system would cost under, you know, leaving um, or remaining. And, and you do, as you've just said, talked about the Ipsos uh, Mori poll. And it, it's not that surprising that nurses are some of the most trusted um, people in professions, uh, coming up at 93%. But as you've said, uh, there's been really huge declines in a couple of areas. Uh, and since that poll has started in 1983, uh, at that time, 85% of people trusted the clergy mm. to tell the truth. By January 2016, you say uh, that, uh, let me get this right, the clergy had fallen to 18, had fallen 18 percentage points mm. and was the eighth most trusted overall. And you talk about these kind of events mm. where, for example, if you think about the Catholic Church and the institutionalized abuse of children that has come out where, you know, it hadn't been reported and it hadn't been followed up in many instances, that just one uh, event can then catalyze other uh, mistrusts mm. of institutions. Um, and that's just one example. Could you share more about how that can really undermine trust and then affect our behavior? Mm. So these 
these major trust breaches so that the abuse in the catholic church and then it's not just the the, the abuse it's is the lack of accountability um and many people turning a blind eye and time time is a very important factor when it comes to trust so if people have known something and they've kept it secret for a long time and this creates a generational scar and so the incident may have happened 20 30 even 50 years ago um but it can have a very long-term effect damaging effect on trust because what it does is it erodes our faith in the people in the system. It erodes our faith in their integrity, in their intentions. And that becomes a disease. Um, it becomes a virus and it's spread very fast and it's very contagious. And you get to a point where um, the erosion of faith, they start to lose legitimacy, these, these institutions. And people start to fear what else could go wrong. Um, and so this loss of integrity and this lack of accountability, they are real enemies. They are they are incredibly dangerous when it comes to trust. And you can look at what happened in the Catholic Church. You can look at what's going on in politics. You can look at what happens after the financial crisis. And it's this feeling that people in positions of power aren't held to the same rules as everybody else, where you see a lot of fear and suspicion and fatigue and anger Um and that's what's rising up now, and we're seeing um, sort of come to an ugly head in 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 our political in, in many ways in the political world. Yes, and you do mention things like the fact that just one leader or CEO in the global financial crisis mm. was jailed mm. for their behaviour, mm. and a lot of them got exit salaries and uh, or, or just no repercussions. They were bailed out by the U.S. government, um, and that. Yeah, that that mechanism of uh, transparency, which would you, you would expect that in an internet age where you know you're having you had WikiLeaks, which was prominent prior. You had the Panama Papers. You, you constantly see whistleblowers, mm. um, you know, revealing these big things. But we still see this constant erosion of institutional trust because there's, there may be some you know light shone on things and oxygen given to big problems but the accountability is really no longer there it's not to the same extent that that we feel that we had mm. before why is there that lack of accountability now i think it's always been there it's just amplified and um i mean this is one of the big points is that institutional trust where it's held by a privileged few, it's opaque, it sits behind closed doors, it just wasn't designed for the digital age. So it's not that many of these behaviours are new, it's just that we find out. And when we find out, that message gets amplified. Um, so, But there's also this interesting thing where we are asking for transparency, and I fell into this trap where you go, yeah, more transparency, more trust. And that's not actually the case. So I think institutions should have be able to keep some things hidden if it's to the public benefit. So I was talking to um, Andy Hordain, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England, and he was saying, you know, during the financial cr- crash, if I'd revealed everything, been totally transparent, there would have been complete fire, it would have been financial meltdown. That was my job mm. to decide what to withhold. So transparency and trust, they're not brother and sister. You kind of given up on trust once you need things to be entirely transparent. So I think, again, I think it's actually a sign of the times that we are asking for more transparency, where I think what we're actually asking for is, is more accountability, the confidence that if the CEO of Volkswagen knew what was going on, which he did, why does he walk away with a multi-million dollar payout? 
it's not okay. Like if, if something happened on your watch and you were aware of it, you should pay that fine. Mm, absolutely. And you do also talk about cultural differences mm. in building trust. And I found that really interesting um, with the China example and uh, the concept of Guangxi. So mm. I'd really love to hear more about that and your experience because you did go to China and experience mm. that firsthand. Yeah, the, <laughs> I went to China several times. The, the China chapter is is interesting and quite frightening as well. Um, so um, it talks about how there's a couple of issues in China and that, that trust is in a very, very tight circle. So if you've ever done business in China, you know, you go through about two weeks of meetings and dinners and you think, when are we going to get to the real work? And that is, that's the work, right? They're, mm. they're figuring you out. Um, and then the other problem is that they, they don't have traditional credit. Many people don't have traditional credit histories. There's high rates of, of fraud and, and fake goods. And so... Um, the Chinese government have started this system called a social citizen score um, that by 2020, every citizen will have a trust score, so to speak. Now, the economic argument you can kind of understand, which is that this is going to make a more trustworthy society and hold people more accountable. But when you actually dig in, it's so 1984. Mm. Um, so it's not just, you know, whether you pay your loans, it's, uh, you know, what you buy online, it's what you say online, it's who you're connected to. And the thing that I really found hard about writing that chapter is that, A, your transgressions follow you for the rest of your life. And the penalties don't relate to the crime, right? So if your trust score goes below a certain level, you know, they've just banned more than 6 million Chinese from taking planes. You can't apply for certain jobs. Your kids can't go to certain schools. And the thing that was finding I found so hard about writing that piece is that, you know, it's very easy to point your Western finger at China and go, that's never going to happen here. And then as I started to dig, I was like, oh, we are not that far off. Mm. Um, we are in this culture of surveillance and w we just don't know what's going on. Like, it's just that it doesn't have a name yet. And so it was a very confronting piece of the book. Right. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, you know, you live in Australia and in the UK, so you have experience of both, um, you know, political And 10 areas. years in New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, you would know as well that you know, particularly in Australia when we had that metadata mm. debate around, you know, we're going to give more and more of our metadata to the government. I mean, a lot of the ministers didn't even know what metadata was, which was a bit disturbing. But we have constantly through COAG and through the federal government's changes that were bipartisan, um, you know, that we're giving away our privacy rights and we're not worried or concerned to the extent that we should be. Mm. Um, is that going to lead to further erosion of trust between uh, citizens and governments when more of these kind of things happen where we see our data might be misused? I actually think we're already seeing it, but I think it's towards the tech companies where we're realising guilty that we've let convenience trump trust you know like i use gmail i use google i know they're collecting that data right i use facebook and they're making a lot of money off this data um and so i i actually don't think the solution lies in government no offense but to your point i just don't think that there are some ministers but it, it's not a problem for traditional regulation to solve um i think we need something a lot stronger here like in um just got back from europe and um gdpr the, the general data protection uh, ruling has just gone through and it's it's strong um i mean it's it's really in the favor of the consumer in terms of your right to delete your right to ask these companies for what they have on you so this woman just wrote this piece in the guardian about uh, asking tinder 
Tinder for her data. She thought she'd get about 20 pages back on mm. her search. She got 800 pages back. And what she was amazed at and what people are always staggered about is they think, oh, it's just on Tinder. And they don't think, well, actually, it's all the photos on Instagram and it's her geolocation. So they know where she went on dates. They know how long that date lasted. They know whether she took an Uber ride there and back. Mm. And so I think this is we've given this data away um, very easily. I mean, I do generally I know it's cliche, but think privacy is dead. But it's it's. If we want more control, we can't let convenience trump trust. We can't just swipe and accept and share and click. We have to slow down and actually ask, what are we, what are we giving away here? Mm. So then if we're looking at the positives and negatives of technology and the increasing use of social media, because you also talk about the fact that a lot of uh, American users rely on Facebook for their news. It's, you know, the majority of Americans' primary source of news. More than 45%. Yeah. Frightening. So, I mean, when we're, when there's such a reliance upon social media, what is the solution? Is it just to, you know, step back from social media and not engage or is there are there other solutions like those mm. European reforms or what could we do it's a, so it's really hard I mean people keep saying okay Facebook needs to take more responsibility and they they are it's slow um they're not going to because then they're a media company, right? As soon as they start editing and curating and they're very insistent that they're just a neutral platform. Um, Which uses an algorithm. It uses an algorithm, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that it's the amount of information and it's the misinformation and it's whose role is it now to edit that. And you could you could say to users, well, you need to take more personal responsibility. But I, you know, I struggle sometimes to discern what is fake news and what is real news and um, – and what is just biased news as well, because there's more of that than fake news on, on the platform. I think we need tools. I think it's actually, it's not a top down process. It actually has to be in the system where you have more tools as a user. So in the same way you use spell check or people use Grammarly or whatever it is, you have a quick way to assess, um, where has this piece of content come from? Who's paid for it? Who is the journalist? Is it a trustworthy source? And it's almost like a layer that appears. So I don't think it's a question of disengaging. And I don't think it's a question of that the platform, whatever it is, takes more control. I know it's also contentious and it's a problem from a business model perspective, but I'd love to see some of the traditional media outlets just divorce Facebook and Google. I, you know, I, I, if there was one that was brave enough to stand up and say, look, I know this is really going to hurt our search. I know this is going to really hurt our distribution channel, but we really value our integrity and our content. So if you want us, come directly to us. And I think this is, you know, you're seeing with the New York Times best quarter in its history in terms of pay subscriptions. It probably a pendulum swing because of Trump and what's going on there. But if we really want great media content that we can trust, we have to pay for it. Um, and so again, I think there is there is a personal accountability on this. But I, I would love one of the media institutions to stand up and say it's a divorce, right? <laughs> Follow us, but we're now going to stand independent, truly independent. Mm. Well, the Guardian seems to be moving more towards that with a reliance on membership um, and getting donations that way. And I know they're also seeking, you know, philanthropic uh, mm. donations, so that they're trying to have some level of separation from advertising, and that's really difficult. 
difficult in an online environment. Sixty percent of the advertising revenue budget goes to Facebook. Mm. I mean, like the the head of the Guardian's actually come out and said, like, this is the reason why they're bleeding money. Mm. And so it's a it's a real challenge. We have two billion people on there. I mean, say sixty five percent of adults look at Facebook every single day. Um, you know, how do you how do you break up from that? enormous influence over distribution and news consumption. Yeah, it's a big question. And you mentioned um, the Trump and US election, and that's one of the things that you say um, is that the election was a contest that really came down to trust mm. um, and that people, the voters, didn't trust Hillary Clinton. Mm. Obviously, there would be gendered elements around women and trust. Mm. Um, but I'd really like to know further about your thoughts on that situation because it was, to some people, particularly academics, quite shocking that <laughs> Donald Trump won. Mm. Not as shocking to me. Um, but I- I'd just like to know what how you think trust played a role yeah. in the US uh, election campaign that we've just seen? Yeah, I mean, um, I find it staggering that 53% of female white voters voted for Trump. I mean, that's staggering. And in some of these instances, like, what the weird thing about trust is we want to give it to someone, and but we generally vote against things for, versus for things. So I don't think people were voting for Trump with their vote, some people. Um, it, was, it was actually a vote not even just against Hillary, but against the establishment. And I, I worked for the Clintons for three years, um, and I'm reading her book at the moment. And the thing that really strikes me is that she knew that she was in a reality show. She knew that she had a trust problem. And you could credit her saying it was her integrity, but she said, I cannot stoop to that level. And what was so hard to her is, you know, the momentum of Bernie Sanders and the momentum of Trump is they were speaking to feelings. They weren't speaking to facts. Um, you know, people will place their trust on things that they understand. You know, I can remember Trump, Mexican war, ISIS and jobs manufacturing, mm. right? Like that's Sanders, um, uh, free education, single payer health care. I can't remember the last one. I can't remember anything from Clinton's policy. And when you read that book, it's actually fascinating in terms of what her policies. And I was like, I had no idea. I had no mm. idea. And Harvard just came out with a study where they looked at news coverage um, and they found that, and this was all outlets, so 10% of news coverage during the election was was actually based on policy. The rest was all personal. And so how can trust break through? How can the most trustworthy break, person break through, the most qualified, the most competent? Because it's, 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 just, it's just playing into people's fears and... And we, you know, I do, I do not like, I despise Trump. I can't even find a word for it. Um, and it was hard holding it back in the book. But what I had to admit is that he he represents an intoxicating form of transparency that is understanding, understandable and meaningful to many people. So it was an election that unfortunately came down to trust. And I think people's mistrust of Hillary, it was partly a gender issue. But I think it was more that she and the Clintons and the Bushes, they were part of this long history that people had just had it off with. Mm. The insiders, so to speak, that are part of those institutions that we no longer trust as mm. we did before. Yeah. And look at the slogans like drain the swamp, take back control. Like all these things are about taking power from someone or something that had power and putting it so apparently back into the hands of the people. Mm. Whereas stronger together, it just didn't mean anything. It felt weak and anemic so um, yes and I'm with her 
Well, I had an issue with that one because yeah. that's all about her. Mm. I mean, I know, yeah, she came from Beyonce. Do you know? Came, she was, sing, no, she was singing in at the end. She said, I'm with her and everyone thought it was wonderful. Yeah. And, and so it became this big thing. But yeah, it was, that felt like it was, I'm with Clint, uh, Hillary. But, um, there it's 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 a really interesting read but i confess because i went in very very skeptical but um yeah and rachel i know you've been focusing uh, around a whole range of technologies Mm. and you do mention something which is quite complicated but i I am interested (laughs) in it so i'm going to bring it up Uh Um, i I know know where you're going blockchain (laughs) the b word yeah um please could you help us understand what this is and why it's important to know what it is? No, no, I'm joking. No? I thought you were going to go to artificial intelligence, no, which, I find, which is a whole other topic. But no, no. no, So the blockchain, so just two basically. So mm. first of all, Bitcoin and blockchain are separate things, mm. right? So Bitcoin is um, the currency, the cryptocurrency that um, this uh, anonymous person called Satoshi Nakamoto, he built the blockchain so that you could transfer digital currency directly. So we could transfer currency with out the banks. Now, Bitcoin's interesting, but it's the blockchain underneath that really has the power and the potential. Um, the easiest way to think of it is like, you know how accountants used to have those physical ledgers? Mm. And if I gave you money, um, we'd both have an entry and they would sit in books. Um, well, that hasn't really evolved much. That's still how banking, traditional banking works. The blockchain changes all that because it's a public ledger that is shared amongst a network of people. And every time someone transfers, it doesn't have to be money, it can be an asset. So I transfer a land title, I transfer ownership of a piece of art, whatever it is, it gets registered in the blockchain. So it gets registered in these blocks. And the reason why it's called a chain is that once it's in there, it can't be removed. So it's an immutable ledger. And so people are talking about how it's going to transform trust because I think it will transform value. That's the really interesting way to think about it. So if you think about how the internet transferred, transformed how we um, transfer information, the blockchain will, over the next decade, transform how we transfer all kinds of value and assets. So you won't need lots of intermediaries. You may not need a real estate agent. Um, if you want to place a bet, you may not need a bookie. Um, it becomes really interesting, actually, when you get to books and um, information because you could buy that chapter directly off an author and make a micropayment through the blockchain. So, so just think of it as a big public digital ledger where you can see the transactions and they're verified by a network. Wow, that's really quite scary to think of. It's like there's not one kind of centralised person or thing that's responsible for this ledger. No, I mean, that's that's the whole idea yeah. is that it's decentralised. It's actually not scary. I mean, it's it's, it's highly transparent yeah. um, and it's, it's decentralised. So, um, But th- there's also a difference between public proc- blockchains. Mm. So Ethereum is a public blockchain. And then um, private blockchains. So the banks have their own blockchains now. Mm. Um, and the reason why they have their blockchains is because it's a more efficient way for them to transfer assets. But um, yeah, now there's, there's these things called dApps. Um, which are like apps built on the blockchain. Um, <laughs> but you, you'll, you'll see it in about, I think, five years. And I think right. the first way most people will feel it is, is with something called a smart contract. And so a smart contract is like a contract, but it's code. So um, just a simple example, we could have a bet tomorrow um, whether Trump was going to be impeached, right? And we could, we could put those odds into a contract and we wouldn't need any lawyers involved. And then tomorrow it could automate the payout. 
um, based on our agreement. So mm. what I find really interesting about it is it, it kind of comes full circle because it's back to that local trust. It's back to that personal trust, but it's it's through a machine. Yes, and also perhaps makes some lawyers and accountants a bit nervous. (laughs) You still need lawyers. I mean, my husband's a lawyer, but um, you still need lawyers to actually – you still have to program law into the code. You still Mm. have to have a legal understanding. I think if I was an accountant or an auditor, I'd be extremely worried Mm. um, because here, you know, have a ledger of transactions. So Wow. Um, And just to close out this really interesting discussion, Rachel, I want to understand from your perspective why you personally got so interested in trust. Um, I know. I ask myself, no. I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's a thread that runs across, I think, so many important things and critical things um, in society. As a parent, um, I have become really obsessed with questions around how my children place their trust in technology and the ethical and commercial intentions of, of the corporate masters that sit behind these things. Um, and then I just think it's... It really is our most precious asset, and I just don't think we understand it enough or take care of it enough. And I think we're starting to see the consequences of of when you just don't value something enough. Um, So, But I am an optimistic person, and I I do think we will get through this. It's just there's going to be a lot of pain and confusion along the way. Yes. Well, it's good that we have your book to uh, make sense of all of this. It certainly has provided me with a framework to think about trust uh, before it seemed like it was out in the ether, a bit invisible and uh, somewhat opaque in Mm. the way that it operates. But I think um, what you're offering here is a great way for people to start to get a grasp on how trust is really operating in their lives and perhaps take a bit more um, control and also feel a bit more secure Mm. perhaps in how trust is operating and we can be more trusting. Yeah, it's made me think, it's made me feel more in control around the decisions I make and and I, as you know, the book is very personal, it's full of a lot of my stories of mistakes I've made and my family's made and and that's I think the way in for a lot of readers. Mm. Thank you so much Rachel for for taking the time, it was great to chat with you. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.